We have really good science that shows that the brain development is really affected by chronic exposure to stress or even one-time exposure to significant trauma. And so we really need to be creating a community where it's everyone's responsibility to recognize that, take that into account, and really respond. This is Brett Clark, and you are listening to Voices from the Field, insights from educators who are positively impacting student learning in the classroom. In this episode, Shelley Taylor, a senior director from the Consortium for Educational Change, speaks with Dr. Tally Revive from the Center for Childhood Resilience about how schools can become more trauma-informed. Dr. Revive shares thoughts on how the entire school community can help students who are in need. She also discusses her new book that explains how teachers can support students dealing with trauma. Tally, can you help us understand the role of trauma in schools and maybe what message um, educators should know about trauma? Yeah, I think one of the important messages um, for people to be aware of is just the prevalence of trauma. So we know that national statistics show that by age 16, about two-thirds of youth will be um, impacted by some type of traumatic event. That could be um, anything ranging from a one-time, what we call acute event, like a a car accident, a significant illness or injury, um, an assault, a home invasion, uh, to chronic ongoing stressors like poverty, abuse, neglect, domestic violence, community violence. And so given those high rates of exposure, it's really important for schools to realize that they have students in their buildings, no matter what community they live in, that are struggling with the impact of that stress. I think the interesting thing when we talk about trauma is a lot of times people think, um, oh, not me. Like, trauma must be somebody else's problem. Can you help us understand a little bit, too, the difference between, and and, and I know I've read some things around this, um, trauma can create toxic stress for some, Mm -hmm. and it may not even be necessarily frequency or the severity of that, but how do do people kind of sort that out? Because I do think that sometimes that's something that gets a little um, confused in people's heads around. Yeah, I think that there, one of the pieces of the definition of trauma is that you can't say, oh, this is a traumatic event and this is going to be the reaction. There are really huge individual differences and variation in individuals' response to an event. And so for some, we know that also, you know, two-thirds of us have been exposed to trauma by age 16, but many, most, are resilient to the effects of that stress. And that really depends on their internal coping mechanisms and their internal resiliency factors, their connections with adults that support them. So that could be family members, it could be friends, it could be church uh, relationships, it could be relationships with educators um, or schools. And so thinking about how can we build resilience, because in this world, so many of us are exposed to constant repeated stress um, through even just watching and consumption of the media. Yeah, and and that brings up a good point. So now there's a lot of emphasis around being a trauma-informed school. Mm -hmm. What does that really mean? (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of a buzzword right now. And we have people calling us up saying, all right, we need to do this training so we can become trauma-informed. And what we like to say is that a a training and and having a trauma lens is a good first step, but really um, becoming trauma-informed is a process. Mm -hmm. And so if we recognize, I think probably schools have increasingly recognized that 
we need to look at the whole child and that that's part of um, really building not just academic competencies but social emotional competencies and so we really see trauma-informed um, work as part of that so if we're going to think about trauma-informed care for a school what that means is that we want all the people in that school community, the administrators, the students, the staff, the community around it, the families, to really recognize and respond to potentially negative behaviors that can arise from um, trauma, right? So th those are negative behaviors, those are ne negative academic impacts, um, and, and social-emotional, relational impacts of traumatic stress. We have really good science that shows that the brain development is really affected by chronic exposure to stress or even one-time exposure to significant trauma. And so we really need to be creating a community where it's everyone's responsibility to recognize that, take that into account, and really respond. So the basics of a trauma-informed school for me, really I, th I think about creating a safe and welcoming climate, which all schools are already doing. Um, having a structured and predictable learning environment, building positive and attuned relationships, and when we're looking at disciplinary action, really balancing restorative practices with um, the more traditional disciplinary um, or exclusionary disciplinary practices. And so those are what I like to tell schools. This is not an additional, this is not a something new. It's really looking at what you're already doing and how do you tweak it to make sure that it's responsive to students who are coming in with potentially negative experiences. So how do you really work with schools to address some of these pieces, especially if um, while there may be processes or there may be even a mindset in place, how does a school do this? Because I know sometimes when I'm with schools, they feel like very overwhelmed and how to become trauma-informed. So what are some different ways that you support schools in their journey to, to becoming trauma-informed or more embedded in their programming? Yeah, so the first thing that I think is, a, is kind of the basic um, piece of that is really providing some really good informational, interactional, um, professional development for all all the people in the building, not just the kind of licensed teachers, but really security, the office clerk, um, really all those people who have relationships with students, who see students. Um, to really understand the impact of trauma on behavior and learning because what we think is really important is to see student behaviors through a trauma lens. So really thinking about how does trauma impact the way the student perceives themselves, themselves as a learner, themselves as a friend, themselves as a community member, how does it impact the way they learn, and how does it impact the way they behave in the classroom. So really helping teachers move from seeing this student is doing something that is disruptive and intentionally, you know, derailing this classroom and trying to do this, you know, to irk me, um, really to seeing is how could this re re uh, behavior be potentially a response to the stressful environment that he or she has lived in. Mm -hmm. uh, so we know, for example, there's really interesting research on um, perception. So students, uh, kids who've, who've been physically abused are much more likely to perceive faces, neutral faces, as hostile. Um, so they did this whole very cool study where they manipulate the faces, right, with Photoshop or whatever, from a very anxious-looking face to a very angry-looking face. And then in between, it's kind of this neutral. We don't know if it's, you know, it's ambiguous. And 
kids who had a history of physical abuse are much more likely to perceive that ambiguous face as hostile. Mm -hmm. And that's incredibly self-protective for them, right? Mm -hmm. If they have adults in their environment, if they've learned that adults in their environment are potentially dangerous, it's protective to assume that somebody may have bad intent and thus you can take action to protect yourself. In the school environment, that's incredibly not helpful, maladaptive, right? And so, but if we can help adults understand that it's not that this this child is angry and malicious and aggressive and defiant, right? We hear that term defiant all the time, that maybe this is because of something that they have learned in their environment. And we have to work hard to respond differently to that student to help them relearn that at least in the environment of school, this is a safe place and adults do not typically have um, malicious intent when they're approaching that student. So that's an example of how the trauma lens can really help shift um, the adults' perceptions of student behaviors um, and moving them from seeing behaviors as intentional and malicious to potentially a response to trauma that needs to be addressed differently. Working with teachers, sometimes um, educators may say, this feels a little soft or it's not my job. Shouldn't the social workers manage these things? And if the social workers could just fix them, then all would be fine in my classroom. What, why do you think it's such an important role for educators to not only know this, but also build their own skill set um, for a, on, the, on a daily basis working with students in the classroom? I think that's a question we get a lot. And I think that teachers, many teachers, say to me, I'm not a social worker. I don't know how to handle this. And we work really hard in the school to give strategies that vary by the discipline and by the role of the person, right? So the role of um, the security person is different than the role of the front office clerk, is different than the role of the teacher, is different from the role of the social worker. And each one of those people, each one of those adults, has the potential to really build the resilience of that student in very different ways. So some students do need actually targeted interventions for trauma. And that is one of the ways that we help schools become trauma-informed, by helping them identify which students do need those Tier 2 within kind of the MTSS or RTI framework, which students do need those Tier 2 interventions, and actually let's provide some training and evidence-based interventions for trauma. Regardless of whether a student needs that targeted trauma intervention, they still need that Tier 1. They still need to have a teacher who is responsive, who is creating a safe environment, who is recognizing potential triggers for that student, whether they be loud noises, whether they be the anniversary of an event that occurred, whether they be, you know, that the student didn't sleep the night before because they were having intrusive thoughts or nightmares or sirens were going off in their neighborhood. And so educators, what they want is an environment that helps kids learn. And so we think schools need to continue to focus on academics. But we also know that the relationship between mental health and academic outcomes is really bi-directional. And so schools need to nurture resilience and mental wellness in order to have kids who come to the classroom who are ready to learn. So that's really the what I talk to teachers about. What do they do within their role without moving into the mental health role? Yeah, and, and for me, um, having been a classroom teacher, I always um, was aware that relationships were important, and I think teachers hear that a lot. And they may even say it, relationships are really important. Um, however, I do really feel that the it's it almost needs to be emphasized even more, that when you have students that um, struggle with, with mental health or just 
emotion in general, right? So some of those just general core competencies for social emotional learning pieces that it is hard for them on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Now, the other part though that I do think sometimes is hard for educators is this line of how much do I need to know mm -hmm. to feel like I can respond and I know in some systems there's um, sort of this this wall against we can't tell you these things because they're private and mm -hmm. personal mm -hmm. versus well I need to know these things so I can feel more empathy what is your stance on sort of that line between what it is that an educator might need to know so that they can respond in a, in a more positive way to students I think that's a really challenging question. I think that the issues around FERPA and HIPAA and privacy and confidentiality are really critical to help um, kids and students and families feel safe. However, I almost feel like there is a way in which an overemphasis of, on privacy almost um, almost emphasizes the stigma of mental health. Like that needs to stay really private because that is somehow shameful or can't be known. Um, so I think that it is really important to have communication. I'll give you an example. In my clinical work early on, I remember working with a teenager who had had a psychiatric hospitalization for depression and suicidality. And after she came out of the hospital, she went back to school. And one of her teachers said to her, I can't believe how much work you've missed. You've been gone for so long. You're going to be so behind. How are you ever going to catch up? you got to make up all this work. And that teacher was not malintentioned. She hadn't been given the information that this student missed school because she'd been psychiatrically hospitalized. So imagine the stress for that for that teen who has just been really focusing on her mental health and wellness, um, was so compromised that she needed to be hospitalized, is still obviously just in the beginning stages of recovery from that acute episode of depression. And then to come back to that environment um, was really challenging. Mm -hmm versus if we talk about if there's a student who has some kind of psychiatric hospitalization or other significant mental health problems, can we send, can we have them have a re-entry meeting first with the counseling staff? Can we send an email saying this student was gone for personal reasons related to mental health, please do the following to support her transition? That teacher would have responded differently, and that student's return to school would have felt really different. Mm -hmm. And so that is the level. I don't think that teachers need to know every detail of what's going on, but I do think that it's helpful to have some communication that will help the teacher approach that student differently. Mm -hmm. In the absence of that communication, we talk about universal precautions. Treat every student as if you may have if they may have trauma, and whether it's trauma or whether it's stress, whether it's they went to bed really late last night because they had to work, whether it's, um, you know, there were some conflict with a, a breakup with a boyfriend, right? Whether it was, a, you know, domestic violence, whether there was a shooting in their neighborhood, you don't know what the student's walking in the door with. So if you can respond and give them the benefit of the doubt that it is, that they are struggling, they are doing the best they can, how can I support you? How can I approach you with that kindness and that um, empathy and invite you to tell me what's going on, I think that that's kind of a message that we want educators to hear as well. Yeah, and I, I would second that. Uh, I feel that it's very important for educators to always seek to understand first yeah. before making any sort of snap judgment around things. I think the hardest thing is that things in schools go by 
at lightning speed and educators are asked to make decisions, so many decisions mm -hmm. within seconds. Um, and I think it's really a matter of everyone slowing down and really seeking to understand before even acting or reacting in some way. I see that a lot, especially when teachers talk about behaviors. And one of the biggest pieces of advice I usually give educators is to you delay consequence. You do not need to give a consequence within seconds of that incident happening. There's other strategies for that so that you can really discover exactly what it is um, that is really beneath the surface on some of those pieces. Yeah, absolutely. So um, tell us a little bit about your new book coming out and how this might be a great resource for educators. The new book coming out is called Creating Healing School Communities, School-Based Strategies for Students Exposed to Trauma. And it is actually aimed towards school-based clinicians, so the counselors, social workers, and psychologists, whether they're employed by the school district or their community partners coming in from outside. And one of the things, it's really set up to follow the multi-tiered systems of support. So the whole first cha uh, few chapters focus on um, educating uh, the reader about trauma and stress and the academic, behavioral, emotional outcomes of that, prevalence, risk factors for trauma. Um, it looks at universal strategies. We spend a long time um, talking about how this fits into um, both SEL, um, multi-tiered systems of support and RTI, how a trauma-informed school perspective fits into those, and really what is the role of the school-based mental health professional in helping to oftentimes move this agenda forward within a school. How do you get buy-in from the administration? How do you get buy-in from the educators? What can you do if you don't have the resources to bring in outside consultation? And then the second half of the book really focuses on clinical strategies. So that's where it's really focused on the mental health professionals, what are some interventions that have evidence for use in schools, how can you access those resources online um, for those that are available online, um, what are some common um, components of all the evidence-based treatments for trauma that you could bring into your practice in schools. And the reason for the book was that we really um, feel like there's a gap in the clinical training for um, psychologists, social workers, mental health professionals, where there's not enough emphasis on what do you do with trauma. And even within school psychology and school social work, there ha many of them come in without that, and then they come to the schools just like the teachers and say, wait a second, mm -hmm. how do I manage this? So it's really a, a resource um, aimed at clinicians to be very practical, but the very first half of the book I think could be helpful for all educators to read and to discuss. Another helpful resource is um, just came out from the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, and it's called Creating, Supporting, and Sustaining Trauma-Informed Schools, a System Framework, and that is really helpful also for schools to really orient themselves to what does it mean to be trauma-informed schools, and it provides um, an overview of at each tier, what can you do to support um, students and families and communities? Oh, that's amazing. That those resources are so needed right now. Oh, thank you. Um, is there anything else you wanted to share with the listeners um, that we haven't covered yet that you think is a really important topic for people to hear about? Um, I think a couple things that I would say. I think one of the, um, you know, I work a lot in Chicago public schools. And one of the things that I've seen is, is a huge trend. Obviously, Chicago's on the national radar for violence. Um, and I often think about what our kids are missing out on in terms of developing social-emotional competencies 
in their day-to-day lives, especially in cities where they're not able to play outside on the playground or they're not, you know, playing with their neighborhood friends. They're missing out on all these opportunities to develop social relationships, develop their competencies, learn how to problem solve, learn how to negotiate, um, learn how to um, be independent. And so then they arrive at school and we're cutting recess down and we're cutting down, you know, the specials, the gym classes, the art classes. And we're really thinking about now the burden is even more on those educators to help teach those social emotional skills Um, and I think that that's a really critical piece the kids who are needing them the most are often the hardest to reach and hardest to create those relationships with and so really thinking about ways to integrate that social emotional learning time into the classroom from the earliest years on up because many kids are not having those natural opportunities to build those skills and that resilience and that's what really this is all about we think that school is the kind of you know our our ideal as americans is that school and education is the path to success right to breaking the cycle of poverty to helping um, students succeed but we also know that there's also a school to prison pipeline for many of our students of color they enter at a um, at a disadvantage and they continue, that disadvantage continues to grow throughout the educational system with disparities in discipline, with disparities in educational attainment, with disparities in um, the type of college and career counseling they need. I would and also argue the opportunities they have. So I see that a lot as even what schools offer them when mm-hmm. we find that kids have fluency issues. I see them not being placed into courses or opportunities even to get them beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so they, you know, in some school districts, they're overrepresented in special education and some there's under Mm -hmm. identification. And so, and many, many of the students that are most at at the disadvantage are students that come from backgrounds of poverty. um, And poverty is a chronic stressor that really leads to higher possibility for all those other kinds of um, traumatic exposures as well. And so across the lifespan, we really want our schools to be a place where students, we are leveling the playing field and allowing our students to succeed regardless of where they come from. We really need to um, give each student what they need. And for some, that is really going to be looking very different than for others. Because I I think the, the country over the last several decades, the the idea that we can educate all students and that all kids will be educated is not going to be realized unless we can really address, personally, I think, some of these really critical factors that we see inhibiting that from happening. So we can all say we want that, but without addressing these, I just don't know if that can happen. Yeah, and the data really show a very strong tie between trauma exposure and poor educational attainment. Higher rates of dropout, lower rates of graduation, higher rates of suspension and expulsion, lowered grade point averages, less college going students. So really looking at that intergenerational transmission of trauma then, um, we really have an opportunity in schools if we can provide the right kind of supports to help them heal from their trauma. Well, and I think now's the time, especially. I think the <clears throat> changes with the Every Student Succeeds Act, some of it's, the, the door is open right now. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think your book and the work that you guys are doing here at Lurie's Children's Hospital is so important to say, all right, the opportunity is upon us. Yeah. We need to really take advantage of those pieces. And, and our center, so as, in, as part of Lurie Children's Hospital, 
hospital, I work for the Center for Childhood Resilience. And the Center for Childhood Resilience mission is really to improve access to high-quality mental health services for, for kids who never walk through our doors. And it's beyond just mental health services. It's also resilience and wellness promotion. So not every child who is exposed to trauma, who comes from a background of poverty, needs mental health services to succeed. Some do. Many will be resilient if they are just afforded the opportunities for those healthy relationships, that academic success, um, after-school activities. So we do a lot of education across systems within mental health, within faith-based communities, within after-school programs, within the public libraries about how to support kids who come through the doors with trauma exposure. Um, so what do all adults need to know in order to help equip those? Because we're, we're not going to mental health our way out of this problem, right? We know that across the country, 20% of kids who have uh, a mental health condition diagnosed get services. 20%. Of that 20%, 70% of those kids are getting those services in schools. So they're not coming through the doors of this hospital for the most part because we have huge barriers to that access. We've got insurance barriers. We've got stigma. We've got um, transportation. We've got childcare. You know, there's there are huge and just awareness and knowledge. And so if schools are the place where children are spending 30 hours a week, what can educators do and what can school-based mental health professionals do to help better support those students? And so we really talk about it being a whole school effort. It's not just the job of one person. And I think that's the key. It, it can't ever stay just the social worker's mm -hmm. responsibility. And I, I often hear that we don't have enough social workers, that there's a lot of behavior problems. We need to get more social workers. Mm -hmm. um, and it's actually, as you mentioned before, I look at it as a door-to-door -door situation from the time those kids leave their home, the door of their home, all the way you know, to the door of the school, to the door of the classroom, all the way back to the door of the home. All of that matters um, and what they perceive and, and how you can sort of impact their they're learning, and it's really about learning, right? Yeah. They're learning. And we know, I think that we've gotten to a really good point with uh, with MTSS, that we know that a lot of kids are going to look like they have a tier two problem with reading if you don't do good tier one instruction, right? If you're not using an evidence-based curriculum at tier one, if you're not doing good instruction in the classroom, mm -hmm. lots of kids are going to look like they need a tier two service. And it's the same with behavioral health. Mm -hmm. If you don't do a good job with tier one, creating safe environments, creating healthy relationships, within the classroom community as well as with the teacher, then a lot of kids are going to look like they need Tier 2 or Tier 3 mental health supports. If we do a better job really creating those structures, so that's everything from, you know, bullying prevention, stigma reduction, social-emotional learning, trauma education, relationship building, collaborations with the community where we, you know, really see the school as the center, as the hub for all these community activities to create this com feeling of community amongst the families that attend that school. If we have that in place, suddenly you're going to see a lot fewer of those kids seeming like they need that tier two because kids are resilient by their nature. And so if we can provide them with that healthy environment at school, that's going to go a long way. And they're available for learning. That's yeah. the way I describe it. They're finally available for learning. But I know when I'm stressed or I'm not feeling well or whatever that might be, I'm not available for those other things as well. I don't, I don't function as well in my own life. Absolutely. So I can't even imagine having to sit and then 
you know, deal with some academic things that might be challenging for me, or, or, or really they've just put some good rigor in there that I need to, to address. Yeah, I, we, there's a really um, fascinating study by Patrick Sharkey, uh, this is probably five or six years ago now, where he had data where kids in Chicago had been kind of repeatedly tested um, for academic and cognitive growth. And so he crosswalked that data from a different study with um, police records of homicides in the neighborhoods. And he's found that in the week following a homicide on their block, the, the students performed significantly worse on those tests. And that was reg regardless of whether they knew that person, they had, regardless of whether they had seen that happen, mm -hmm. just knowing that sense of safety, just no, being shaken, right? Just knowing that there are things occurring in the community that are making kids feel unsafe, that are distracting them, that are making them worry about the safety of their family, that kids are talking about, that people are talking about, maybe the sirens keeping them up at night. We all would function less well when we have that type of stress. And so I think that's a, it's a really good reminder. How do, how do you function when you've had something upsetting happen in your family? Mm -hmm. And how are you approached at work? What do your colleagues say to you if you've had a death in the family? Do they expect you to be functioning at your best, or are they going to give you a little leeway and ask how they can help? Why would kids need anything different? Is there anything else you think we should uh, throw out there? I'm really excited by all of the attention um, and potential even legislation. There's uh, potential legislation coming down uh, from that has been proposed by Senator Durbin from Illinois about um, really being able to fund more of this work about trauma awareness and education in all child-serving settings uh, because it really is a public health issue um, facing our country. And if we don't address the impact, we're really not going to get where we want to be in terms of educating the next generation. And I think I'm excited about the partnerships that I'm starting to see. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes coming from somebody who uh, started as a classroom teacher and have been pretty ingrained in the educational system, I will tell you a lot of times I felt pretty isolated as a teacher. Like, wait, am I now going to have to solve every kid's problem? Yeah. Like I used to say, okay, I, yes, I have to not only teach them, but I also have to kind of be their mother. I have to kind of be, you know, like food service and all these other things. Um, and it can feel very daunting as an educator. I love the, the partnerships that I'm starting to see happen um, to say, nope, it's not just the school's problem, but we do realize that we all need, it is a community approach to mm -hmm. supporting. And we, you know, we, that old saying that says it takes a village, I feel like that kind of went away for a while. And I love the fact that it's coming back in. I, and, and I think for educators that, that, I think, sense of it's not just me trying to solve the weight of the world um, is nice, too. Yeah, I'm excited that. Yeah, that false silo, right? So that, you know, you're the pediatrician, so you're only looking at the physical body. And you're the educator, so you're only looking at, you know, the academic learning. And you're the parent, so you're only looking, you know, it really, kids don't work that way. They're not divisible. Learning, do parts. learning doesn't work that exactly. way. <laughs> yeah. And we all, we learn through relationships. We learn through interactions with others. And so focusing on what kind of community do you have in your building, in your classroom, in your family, I think is really important. So I just want to thank you so much, Tally, for your time today. And um, I, I appreciate uh, what you bring um, for myself, but also for um, all the other educators out there who really need to focus on um, this type of information. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you today, Shelley. 
That was Dr. Tali Raviv discussing the negative impact trauma is having on our nation's children and strategies that can be used by schools and teachers. Any school or district interested in learning more about building trauma-informed schools can visit the CEC website at cecweb.org.